and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen. And in the morning, watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against us, the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And the Egyptians fled into it. The Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. And all of the host of Pharaoh that followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel, picture this, Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. What might that have looked like? What might, I mean, th- that, would be a, that would be a moment you would never forget. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so... So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. Father, please help us to understand all that we need to understand from this passage this morning. Use it to convict us and to comfort us, to inform us, to motivate us. God, I pray that we would see you in this passage and we would worship you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Who, when I say this phrase, who comes to your mind? I am the greatest. Who comes to your mind? Yeah, Muhammad Ali. Yeah, that's right. Anybody remember his pre-conversion name? Cash is very yeah. All, all the sports buffs are trying to flex on me right now. Yeah, I couldn't. I actually couldn't remember it. Um, yes, Muhammad Ali, right? And when I, I when I hear Muhammad Ali say that, I'm not a boxer, but when I hear him say that or act that way, I want to punch him. You know, and like that would not end well for me. But when someone, when someone behaves like they are the greatest, you like that, Larry? Yeah, I'm, I have no business punching Muhammad Ali. Um, but I want to when he acts that way. It, it, when, when someone acts like they know everything, like it's just incredibly irritating to us. We watch Barney Fife on the old Andy Griffith show stuff, right? And like, Thankfully, like we have this discussion in our home because we'll watch an episode of, of Andy Griffith every now and then. And, uh, and, you know, we're just like, oh, my goodness, this guy. And I, and I have to remind my wife especially because she just gets so frustrated with Barney. I'm like, he's acting. He's actually, the way you're feeling right now, he's trying. That's the whole point of the show is to make us feel totally exasperated with this guy who just acts like he knows everything, feels like he knows everything. We don't like that. Uh, um, if you're familiar with the... Uh, with the um, 
the penguins of Madagascar. What are the Madagascar movies? I'm looking at my kids for the for the for the King Julian. How many of you know what I'm talking about? King Julian in the Madagascar movies, right? When he says it's nothing personal, we're just better than you, right? Like when we're when we're around, when we're around people who behave that way, we're like this is not okay. And it, what's worse is they don't even have to say it, but they act like it and we're just we're totally we're exasperated by, by people like this. But here's, the, here's something that's interesting. We don't like it when someone acts like when they're the best or when they think they're the best. But we actually do often want someone in our life who is the best. So, so for instance, if you're having heart surgery, you, you kind of want the best heart surgeon, right? You're not looking through a list of surgeons and go, these mediocre to lesser um, uh, heart surgeons are a little cheaper, let's go with one of them, right? It's not how you're operating in, in that moment. You, the, uh, we recognize that we do want the best. We want, and I think there's even some commercials out there, you know, that kind of hit on this theme, like, you know, here's an average insurance company, or here's an average, you know, heart doctor, that sort of thing. Brothers and sisters, the Word of God tells us that God is the best. That's putting it very mundanely. One of the attributes that the scriptures teach about God, one of, the, one, of the, one of his character traits, one of the things that are true about him that we use to describe his greatness is something called sovereignty. And I think, I think you guys may have discussed it in Sunday school this morning. Is that, did you guys talk about sovereignty of God, providence of God? Okay, similar theme. Um, we use this to, it's one of the words that we use to help us understand the bestness of God, right? We want someone who's the best. God is the best. One of the ways that we, one of the terms that in which we think about the bestness of God is his sovereignty, that God is completely in control of everything. On, your, on the bulletin that you got on the back, I think it says Sovereign God as the sermon title. And I've, I've uh, massaged the title just a little bit. The, the title is actually this morning, Sovereign and Glorious. That's the, that's the title of the sermon this morning. And that's what we're going to look at in Exodus chapter 14 this morning. And my main point, the theme this morning is this. God sovereignly controls all things for His glory. God sovereignly controls all things for his glory. And we're going to see it in several ways this morning as we look into Exodus chapter 14. Now, I'm not going to read the entirety of the chapter again. We've already done that. But I'm going to kind of walk us through several main points of the, or several themes in Exodus chapter 14 that I think really highlight the significance of this truth that God sovereignly controls all things. And when I use the phrase there, all things, I literally mean all all things. And you might think, well, yeah, but what about, and whatever came into your mind, the yeah, what about, that thing too. And we're going we're gonna to try to unpack some of that now as we, as we look into this passage. Point number one here this morning, I've got three points that are going to kind of walk us through this passage. First of all, God sovereignly controls everything for his glory. You, might, you, you just said that. That was the main point. Yeah, that was the main point, and it's also point number one. God sovereignly controls everything for his glory. Do you ever wish that you were in control? And I don't mean of everything, of anything. We, we can't get our cat to come in. We can't get our children to do exactly what we want to do. Our employees, right? Man, we wish they would 
how come they don't know what I've told them, you know, a hundred times over the last three years to, you know, I've told them exactly how, there's just, we are constantly reminded of how little we're in control of. Or don't you wish that, that someone was in control of everything? Someone good. Let, let's just think about politics. The, the governing of whether it's a city or a state or a country, it would be so relieving to know that a good, like a just thoroughly, intrinsically good and wise and capable person was in complete control of everything. But we know that there's two things that prevent that from happening. Number one, no one is in complete control of everything, and no one is perfectly good and perfectly wise. But brothers and sisters, God is. God is absolutely and totally in control of everything. And we see it in Exodus chapter 14 in several very clear and striking ways. First of all, we see that God is in direct control over the countries that are mentioned here in the, the book of, uh, of Exodus, and specifically in chapter 14 this morning. God's in control of the country of Egypt. God has delivered Egypt. And, and back in chapter 13 and here in chapter 14, it describes how God is the one who's leading Egypt. God is taking them, excuse me, Israel. I probably do that a lot in this sermon series. You're kind to be patient with me when I say Israel and mean Egypt and vice versa. God is delivering Israel from the country of Egypt. And as they're going out, remember last week we talked about how the direct route would have been to go kind of north and east. And God takes Israel south and east out of the land of Egypt because he's directing their course. And God here in this passage is directing the country of of Egypt as well, where uh, Pharaoh and his horsemen are getting ready. They see that Israel, and it's interesting to me, like how how did Egypt know what Israel was doing out there. I mean, I don't know if there's some, some spies out after them or something like that. There's a lot of details that we don't know that I'm eager to know about. But we know that God is in complete control of the country of Israel, the country of Egypt. As we read through this passage, we see that God is in complete control over the forces of nature as well. right? And this is all through the Bible, but just right here in Exodus chapter 14, we read earlier that God sends a strong east wind, and it parts the Red Sea. And lest you just think that this was like some big puddle, and God sent a really big wind, and it kind of dried up the puddle, and the puddle went away, and then the people of Israel were able to, um, to, to, get, to get away from the people of Egypt. How, how do we know that that wasn't the case? There's another phrase that's used to describe what's going on here. It says that the water was, were like walls on their right hand and on their left hand. Now, in preparation for this sermon this morning, I did some very deep scholarly reading and study, and I watched some YouTube videos. Uh, on the old, you remember the old um, Charlton Heston, uh, is it, was it just called Moses? Is that was the name of the movie, right? And if you haven't watched that in a while, go back and watch it again, because it is cheesy. I mean, it is like the... The, the graphics or whatever, you're like, oh my goodness, I think I could do better with my iPhone, with my kids in the backyard, than what was going on here. And, but, but seriously, but watching it, um, I must confess to having a little bit of like a lump in my throat, like, wow. I mean, what would that have been like? And then there's a newer version that's 
just terrible in so many respects, but I think it's called Exodus, Gods and Kings or something like that. It's a much newer version. But even there, when you, when you watch that scene of what it might have looked like, you realize whatever's going on here, this is not some fluke of nature that Israel gets to capitalize on. The God of the universe shows up and is in complete control over wind and water, and he makes a way for his people to escape. God is in absolute and complete control over the countries. He's in absolute and complete control over nature, and he's in absolute and complete control over people. Remember, he shows up to Moses in the burning bush. He directs Moses back into the land of Egypt to rescue the people of Israel. And God is in complete control over Pharaoh as well. And we've addressed this several times in this series already. But if you look in verse 4 and in verse 8 and in verse 17, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And while we might look at that and go, well, what exactly does that mean? And what exactly is going on here? What we do at least know is this. God himself is taking responsibility. He's saying, I have control over the most powerful human being on the planet. I'm in control, not Pharaoh. God has control over countries. and God has control over nature. And God has control over people. God has absolute and complete control over everyone and everything, and he does this, remember, for his own glory. He does all of this for his own glory. Did you know that God is not rescuing Israel primarily for Israel? God's rescuing Israel primarily for himself. This is going to have a lot of application for us here in just a minute. Did you know, do you know the main reason God saved you if you're a follower of Christ? Do you know the main reason he saved you? For his glory. That humbles us, and rightfully so. We often think that God saved us because we're awesome and he needs us. No, you're not awesome and he doesn't need you. God does this for his own glory. Look in verse 4. Uh, verse 4 and verse 17 both have the, this phrase in it. Um, verse 4. God is talking, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh. That word glory, um, and where that phrase glory over Pharaoh, the word glory in the Hebrew, I'm not even going to attempt trying to say it because I know I'll say it wrong, but it has the idea of weight, of weightiness. A lot of times we'll talk about something being important or we have, we have a really weighty conversation coming up with someone later today. We know that, that, that means that's something that's really important, a heavy conversation. And what God is actually saying here is, I'm going to prove through my power over Pharaoh that I'm the weightier one. I, I'm going to have weight. I'm going to have glory over Pharaoh. What God, brothers and sisters, God is flexing. God, God is showing I am the one who's in absolute and complete control. And in fact, I'm going to bring out, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here. I'm going to bring out, I'm going to, I'm going to set a trap. I'm going to have my people turn back. Look in verse 2. Tell the people of Israel to turn back. They're turning around, they're moving backwards and encamping in a specific place because God is setting a trap. This last, uh, I think it was last Sunday, uh, I saw uh, Sunday morning as I was in my office before anyone got here, I'm sitting there at my desk and out of the corner of my eye, I see a little 
thing scurry across my doorway. And I looked over, and it was a mouse. And so later that week, well, Monday morning, I set some traps. Now, I know you can put out poison, but for some reason, traps are more fun um, to, to me. Uh, um, and so I, I set a trap. Later, you know, a day later, I come by, mouse in the mouse trap, right? I, I knew, and I did it the old school way. I literally put cheese in it, right? Like, who does that? Like, that's in the cartoons that you actually use cheese. I actually used cheese, put cheese in the mouse trap. The mouse came. The mouse did not survive. I proved my weight over the mouse. And you might think that's ridiculous and don't be irreverent. I'm not being irreverent. This is, God is literally, Pharaoh is as a, a mouse, to the God of the universe. So, so verse 4, verse 17, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and his chariots and his horsemen. This isn't even just like I'm going to, you know, Jerry and I are going to arm wrestle. Jerry and his house and his family and his business, like I'm, having, I'm going to have weight and glory over. I'm going to prove that I am Yahweh God. And brothers and sisters, by the way, not only here in this story in Exodus chapter 14 was God in control of the nations and God in control of the, of the um, nature and God in control of people and doing it all for his own glory, but do you know what? Today, God is still in absolute and complete control over all countries and over all nature and over all people and over all, everyone, and everything. He, he still is. He is in absolute, perfect, total, independent, autonomous, free, complete control of everything and everyone. And some of us don't like that. Because that makes it seem like I'm not in complete, total, independent, autonomous, free control of me. But brothers and sisters, if you don't like this, if you don't like this truth about God, that God is an app, and I'm just kind of sticking with, for the most part, sticking with Exodus chapter 14 this morning. But the, the weight of the scriptures is that he is in complete control. The Lord is in the heavens. He does whatsoever he pleases. He does all things for his glory. But if you don't like this, it's because you don't know him. See, try to imagine someone who is perfectly wise. They, they always, 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 always make the right decision. Now, you and I know some wise people. We know some really wise people who know a lot of good stuff, and they do tend to make good decisions. And, and the decisions that they make bless many other people. But you don't know anyone who always, 100% of the time, knows exactly what to do in every single circumstance. But, but God is, is all wise. I mean, he always knows exactly what to do. And not only is he perfectly wise, but he's also perfectly loving. So not only does God knows exactly what to do, but he always has the heart to do the right thing. 
Right? You might know someone who's really smart, really wise, really knowledgeable, but if they don't like you, that's no comfort. If you're like, well, he's really smart and he's really wise, but he doesn't like me very much, you're not going to go to him for help. You're not going to be comforted that he is as powerful as he is. But someone who is perfectly wise and perfectly loving, they always know what's best for you, and they're willing to do it, and they always will do what is most loving for you. God is all-wise, and he is all-loving, and now when we add to him that absolute, total, independent sovereignty, well, now you have someone that you want in charge of everything. If he's all-knowing and he's all-loving, then who better to be all-powerful? So when we think about God's absolute, perfect, total, independent, complete control of everything and you don't like it, it's because you've forgotten that he is also perfectly wise and perfectly loving. So he is still, even today, in absolute, complete control over all countries. The United States, Israel, China, North Korea, Iran, Afghanistan, Eritrea. I was trying to think of some obscure little place. Um, That was the only one I could think of. God is in absolute and complete control over all countries. And as we think about countries here and God's control over all things, let's be careful. I think a lot of times when we hear like the Egypt versus Israel here in Exodus chapter 14, we assume that in our modern context, that means like, okay, Egypt is the bad guys, and so that would be like Iran, and Israel is the good guys, and that would be like the United States, right? Like, so in our modern context, it's, it's or North Korea versus the United States or something like that. But we have to remember how the New Testament interprets what's going on here. Egypt represents sin and slavery, Egypt represents not so much a nation state as it represents the forces of this world and the evil one. And Israel represents God's people. So the application to today is God has absolute control over his people and those who are not his people. He is the sovereign God of all and of everyone. And there is a very, very sobering passage in the book of Romans that deserves extended attention. But let me read to you just a little bit from Romans chapter, who thinks they know where I'm going? Romans chapter 9. When we think about God having complete and sovereign control over the lost and the saved, what shall we say then? These are God's words, not mine. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses... Who's the one writing Exodus chapter 14? Moses. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God is sovereign in his choice of whom he has mercy and compassion on. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh. Who are we talking about in Exodus chapter 14? We're talking about Moses. We're talking about Pharaoh. Romans chapter 9, talking about Moses, talking about Pharaoh. I think the New Testament authors were very familiar with what's going on here in the book of Exodus. Verse 17, the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, 
that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Remember, God says, I'm going to give I'm going to have glory over Pharaoh. I'm going to have weight over Pharaoh. The New Testament is saying that's exactly what happened. Verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And you're thinking exactly what verse 19 is getting ready to say. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? God is telling us we are not wise enough to understand all his ways in his matters of sovereignty and providence. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his, what? Of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for what? glory. Brothers and sisters, I do not understand all of the depths of God's providence, all of the depths of God's sovereignty, why he chooses some for salvation. I don't understand the the depths of the sovereignty of God, but I do know this, that what God is doing, he is doing for his glory. And even the punishment of the wicked glorify God. You have to remember that we all deserve that punishment. We are born, we, we are sinners by birth and by choice. And all deserve punishment. And God, through reasons known only to Him, in His sovereignty, chooses those to be saved who will be saved. The Scriptures teach this clearly. And He does this for His glory. He did it with the nation of Israel. He chose Israel and no other nation. Why? For his own glory. He chooses today his people, his church, and he does it. Why? For his own glory. God's not doing something different now than he did in Exodus. God chooses his people. He has control over Pharaoh. He has control over Moses. He has control over Egypt. He has control over Israel. He has control over the lost. He has control over the saved. God has complete control, and he's doing things for his own glory. He is still in absolute and complete control over all people. And he is loving and he is wise. Friend, you might not like the fact that God is in absolute sovereign control of all things, but that's only because we don't know him. And let me ask a question that I think helps bring it into very clear focus. Who else would you want in complete control of everything? Would you want some other option? Do you want some kind of world in which God is not in complete and absolute control over everything? Do you want to give Satan a quarter of an inch of control over anything? Do you want to give you control? We do. That's what sin is when we take the crown off of God's head and put it on our own head. and We act like we're the sovereign ones. That's what, that, when we sin, that's what we're doing. We're saying, I know better than the king knows. But, but when I think about the question, well, then, then how else would I want the world set up? And not, not that my determination is even what matters, but 
I want a world in which God is in absolute, complete control over all things. Not only is God uh, the one who God sovereignly controls everything for his glory, but number two, God sovereignly saves people for his glory. You're like, you just kind of said that. Yeah, I did, but I'm going to talk about it some more. Verse 13. In verse 13, we jump in. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. God is going to save his people. Stand back and see the salvation of the Lord. And, and here is our favorite part of the story. And like I said, I, in preparation for today, I watched movie clips uh, to, help me, to help me prepare and we need a video clip, right, of verses 16 through 28 where God does just this. He brings the wind, separates the waters. The people of Israel walk through on dry ground. The people of Egypt are kept uh, away by the pillar of cloud and fire. The people of Israel make it through. The people of Egypt come in, and God closes the waters down on top of them. The people of Israel go through on dry ground, and the Egyptians come through, and God covers them up. And brothers and sisters, do you remember when we talked about um, in, uh, in earlier in Exodus when God had Moses go into Pharaoh and throw his staff down and it became a snake and put his hand in his vest and pull it out and it's leprous and he takes water and it turns into blood. You remember how we talked about that those signs that God had given to Moses or the, the signs of the plagues, they weren't just cool magic tricks that God was doing to show off. God wasn't just doing some things to make Pharaoh go, whoa. God was at, when, when, when Moses threw the staff and it became a snake and picked it back up and it became a staff again, do you remember that God was proving to Pharaoh that God was more powerful than the serpent? You remember that Pharaoh would have had a serpent on the crest of his, of his hood and God, was, God wasn't just saying, hey, here's a, here's a really cool trick. God was saying, I have control over you, Pharaoh. And, and, and over all the plagues of Egypt, we walked through the different plagues of Egypt, and each one of those represented a different Egyptian god. And God was saying, I have control over all of your gods. With what God is doing here in Exodus chapter 14 is something just as intentional again. God isn't just doing some cool trick to show Israel how strong he is and to kind of kill a bunch of Egyptians all at once. Have you ever thought about, I mean, God could have delivered the Israelites and just, you know, we could have skipped chapter 14. They could have left when God killed the firstborn of Egypt. The Israelites could have gone out of the land of Egypt and then just gone off into the wilderness. But for some reason, God brings them to the Red Sea, and God's doing what we just talked about here, this dividing of the waters, bringing the people through the waters, and using the waters to destroy Egypt. There's something very specific that God is doing. He's not just doing something to show how creative he is. He is, and this is important to know, he's delivering his people through the waters of judgment. God is delivering the nation of Israel through the waters of judgment. There's no way that Moses would have written chapter 14 or that Israelites throughout history would have read chapter 14 without almost immediately thinking back to Noah. How did God judge the world in the days of Noah? With a great flood. 
God used waters of judgment to judge the sin in the world in that day. And how did God deliver the handful of his people who were alive in that day? In, in an ark, right? And we jump forward in the New Testament, the ark is actually referred to as Christ. So, so God is bringing waters of judgment upon the sinners and delivering his people in an ark, this in, in, in earlier in Genesis, um, delivering his people uh, in an ark through the waters of judgment. What God is doing here in Exodus chapter 14 is delivering his people through waters of judgment. He is bringing waters of judgment to destroy the Egyptians, and yet his people walk through those dangerous waters safely. And in the New Testament, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, it says this, Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought, brought safely through the water, Baptism, which we've seen this morning with Elise, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. One of the other things, baptism kind of represents several things, but one of the things that baptism represents is you've gone under the waters of judgment and you have survived in Christ and you have emerged alive. Throughout the Bible, waters represent dangerous places. Angie and I were talking about this last night. It's kind of, it, when you stop and think about it, it's kind of obvious. You can't live there. Like, you die. You go under the water for just a few minutes, and you're dead. In Genesis, um, in, in chapters 2, 3, 4, where God is um, creating the world, um, it, it talks about how his spirit hovered over the face of the deep, and what God does is he brings forth land out of the deep. He brings out of a place where man cannot live, he brings a place where man can live on the land. And so throughout the Bible, and you remember, uh, in Revelation, maybe you've read that part in Revelation where it talks about, and there will be no more sea. And I don't know exactly what that means as far as what the bodies of water will look like in the new heavens and new earth, but the thing that's being communicated is the judgment waters that have always represent danger and fear and a place where man cannot live, that will no longer be a threat. God delivered Noah and his family through the waters of judgment in an ark. God delivered the people of Israel through the waters of judgment by dividing the Red Sea. God delivers us through the waters of judgment, through the death that we experience in Christ. You might be like, really? Are you making a stretch here? I'm not making a stretch here. I didn't make it up, by the way. I mean, like lots of pastors and theologians throughout history have, have um, uh, believed this and because it's what the Scriptures teach. Um, uh, many of you have read John Bunyan's famous Pilgrim's Progress, right? And you remember how when, when Pilgrim crosses to the New Jerusalem, the, new, the heavenly city, what does he go through? He goes through water. Some of you have read this. If you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, you've got to read Pilgrim's Progress, okay? That's a, a pastoral edict. You have to do that. I'm just kidding. No, I'm not kidding about the fact that you need to read it. Um, C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, when Reepicheep, the little mouse guy, right, when he is getting ready to go into the city of Aslan to live with, you know, when he's going to heaven, he goes through waters that will take his life to bring him to new life. This is a theme throughout the Bible. It's a theme that many Christians have highlighted throughout the years. God is not just doing a super cool trick. He's delivering his people through waters that should have killed them, but he has chosen them. Their belief is in him. God delivers his people and judges those who are not his people. 
And he does this sovereignly, and he does this for his own glory. And friends, when you are saved, it is completely by God's work that you are saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, not by works of righteousness, which you have done, but according to his mercy, you have been saved. You don't add to it. You don't do it. It's not, you don't bring your A game and then God makes up for the rest. God is completely sovereign in your salvation. Look in verses 13 and 14 again. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. You get the idea that Moses is saying, all right, everybody, grab some popcorn. Keep your eyes open. Pay attention. Watch what God is getting ready to do for you. And if that's not clear enough in verse 13, verse 14 says, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to do your best. You have only to roll up your sleeves and run as fast as you can and Grab some spears and stuff and fight off as many Egyptians as you think you can hit. You have only to be silent. Brothers and sisters, when we come, when we come, this is how God saved e- Egypt when, when, through the waters of judgment. When God saves us through the waters of judgment, we come to him with nothing in our hands, not by works of righteousness, but knowing that he is the one who has accomplished salvation for us. And that salvation for us is accomplished when Jesus Christ went to the cross for us. The Israelites were told to, to, to stand firm, that God would fight for them, and they only had to be silent. They stood there and watched God gain victory over the evil one. Brothers and sisters, the place where we stand to receive the salvation of God on our behalf and to have victory over the evil one, we stand at the foot of the cross. At the cross, Christ went into death and triumphed over it, bringing all those who will turn from Egypt and put faith in him to the ultimate promised land. Isn't Exodus cool? I'm just telling you, man, I love this book because it's just constantly pointing us to Jesus. So God does this. God saves the people of Israel for his glory. They, They bring glory to him. This work that he does brings ultimate and absolute. He gets the weight over Pharaoh and all his host and his chariots and his horsemen. And when God saves us, Ephesians chapter 2 talks about the glory that comes to God when God saves us. So God sovereignly saves Israel for his glory, and God sovereignly is still today saving others for his glory. And and so we know he's doing that, so we take the message of Jesus Christ and we share it with as many people as we can. And third and lastly, God sovereignly sanctifies people for his glory. God sovereignly sanctifies people for his glory. Salvation is when you, at one moment in time in God's plan, God rest, God saves you. You were an enemy. You were on your way to hell. God saves you, and now you are a child, and you're on your way to heaven. But now that we're on our way to heaven, God is growing us. He's changing us. We're being sanctified. Salvation is, some, is a one-time event that happens at one moment. Sanctification is something that happens over the, the, the life of, of the Christian. We continue to grow step by step. Do you, ever, do you ever look at the people of Israel as you read through, especially a book like the book of Exodus or Joshua or you know, one of those kind of books, and think, man, those people were a mess. Like they, they would do right for like 20 minutes, 
and then they would fall away for 40 years, and then they'd come, you know, they'd repent and they'd get right again. It just seemed like they were constantly falling. It just seems like the people of Israel never learned to just trust God and obey God. Maybe you have a little more humility than that, and you think, I know I'm like Israel. I know I'm like Israel. But, man, I, I'm glad I'm not as bad as Israel. I mean, I know that Jeremy's getting ready to tell us that we're all just like Israel, and I kind of believe him, but thankfully, but we're really just not quite as bad as Israel. Well, let's just start by looking at what we see in this passage in Exodus chapter 14. In verse 8, it describes them as going out defiantly. Again, I, I love how descriptive the scriptures often are. I mean, the, the people of Israel were likely in the millions. I mean, there's just a, an enormous amount of people that are leaving the land of Egypt. And, and you can imagine that, like, uh, on their way out, like somebody's got a can of spray paint, you know, and they're like spray painting Egyptian stuff. You know, like, we're out of here, see you later, losers. You know, Israel was here, uh, underline. You know, I don't know, they probably didn't have spray paint. But they're leaving defiantly. There's some, maybe they're giving them some gestures on the way out, like, see you guys later. You know what I mean by gestures, right? They're sticking their tongue out. They're do, like, they're leaving defiantly. You can see the cocky swagger in the steps of the people of Israel as they're leaving. And then in verses 12 through, uh, 10 through 12, they see Egypt coming. And it describes them immediately as fearful. And they're saying to Moses, why did you bring us out here? There were, weren't there enough graves in, in Egypt? That, I mean, you didn't have to bring us out here because we needed more place to bury everybody. We told you to leave us alone. We told you just to let us. These are the same people who, I mean, it has to be within 48 hours, 72 hours, something like that. I mean, the same people who were leaving defiantly, their cocky swagger as they're leaving the land of Egypt, and now they're saying to Moses, their leader, you should just, we would have just stayed there and served Egypt. And while they are in this state, while they are fearful and ticked off and angry and sassing back to Moses, God delivers them. God is gracious and kind and loving even when the people of Israel are rascals. And, and then look in verses 30 and 31. The Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And you can just imagine, I mean, w many of us have been to the sea or the ocean or some body of water where there's you know, some, some movement to some waves and that sort of thing and stuff washes up on the seashore. And I don't know if you're watching like thousands of Egyptian so soldiers or a handful, but the people of Israel are looking at dead bodies floating here in the water. And they know what they've gone through. They know the the... They were defiant, then they were afraid, and then they watched God work. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And we, this is a beautiful ending to chapter 14, where, where the people of Israel are. They're in a place where they fear the Lord and they believe in the Lord. But do the people of Israel stay in this condition? For the rest of the book of Exodus? 
No. Look in the next chapter, verse 24, chapter 15, verse 24. The people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? They, they said it just like that. Verses 16, 2 and 3. Or, excuse me, chapter 16, verses 2 and 3. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, I wish we would have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots. They were good Texans. And ate bread to the full, right? That's all you need, bread and meat. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill us, the whole assembly, with hunger. What are we going to drink? What are we going to eat? These are people who have just watched dead bodies wash up on the shore in a miracle that can be explained no other way than Yahweh God has rescued us. Their story was a story of constant growth and failure, growth and failure, growth and failure. Brothers and sisters, that's your story too. That's our story too. You're not as awesome as you think you are. Honestly, you're worse than you think you are. And isn't it incredibly encouraging to look at Exodus chapter 14 and to see a people who didn't deserve to be saved, people who were grumbling and complaining, people who were full of fear, people who were murmuring against their leader, people who thought that their old way of life would have been better than this new way of life. And God, in his grace and mercy, still steps in and rescues them. And don't you know that to be true in your own life as well? You leave here on Sunday and you think, I'm not going to sin again. I am not going to sin again. And you don't make it to the car before your kid falls and gets, you know, spills their stuff all over the parking lot or your wife tells you what's for lunch and that is not what you wanted for lunch and whatever. You take two steps forward and one step backwards and two step forwards and three step backwards and four step forwards and one step backwards. And this is the Christian life, right? The general trend, the general trajectory by God's grace. And when I say by God's grace, I'm not trying to figure out something to throw into a sermon to make it longer. By God's grace, you make it on a trajectory that is upward, but up, down a little bit, up, down a lot, up, down, up, down, right? Your, your progression toward Christ-likeness is one like that. Friend, if you're the kind of person who feels strong one day and weak the next day, obedient one day and disobedient the next day, you, you sense that God is in your devotional time and yet you yell and cuss at your kids, you, heal, you see God heal you of a disease and then you look at pornography later the same day, you see God answer a prayer that you've been worried sick about and then you are worried sick about what people think of you. You see God provide a financial need, and then you gripe and complain about something that you don't like. Friend, if you're that kind of person, there is good news for you. You're the kind of person God loves to save over and over and over and over again. That you're the kind of person that God sanctifies. I'm not talking about, I mean, salvation happens when we turn from sin and trust in Christ. But we continue to walk just like the Israelites walked. We obey a little bit. We kind of do good. Then we start thinking we're doing really great. And then we fall. You're the kind of person that God loves to sanctify. And I don't know if that encourages you, but man, does that encourage me to know that his grace is new and sufficient. For, if I do well, it is by his grace. I need his grace desperately every day. And I don't have to earn it. 
I didn't have to earn it at salvation, and I don't have to earn it for my sanctification. It becomes full and free in Christ. But do hear this. Those that he saves, he does sanctify. Now, your sanctification may look a lot like mine. I anticipate that it does, right? Two steps forward, one step backward kind of sanctification. But God does grow the people that he saves. There is no such thing as God saving someone and then leaving them. Whom, um, he who has begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. What that means is if God has begun the work of salvation in you, he's going to keep working in you and he's going to keep growing you. If you're sitting there this morning and you're, you're thinking, man, I, I just don't know if I'm growing enough. And, man, I really... I, 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 I love God and I want to grow more. And maybe I'm not growing enough. Maybe I'm not really saved. Uh, let me just say this. I, I, I don't know any man's heart. Only you and God know your heart. But you, you're probably growing. But if you're the person in here who thinks, you know, I prayed a prayer when I was five and I'm just going to live however I want to because God's grace is, I mean, sufficient, but I don't have to listen to him and I'm not going to grow and I'm not going to become more like him. Like, no, no. Those, those that God... Uh, you remember in James, uh, faith without works is not faith. There, there is a way in which God does grow his people. And you look and you see in verses 30 and 31, that's exact, they see the mighty, powerful hand of God, and they fear him and believe in him. In verse 31, it says uh, the Egyptians, uh, excuse me, the Israelites feared the Lord. And when we think of fear of the Lord, if we haven't been in church for a little bit, um, sometimes you might think, that doesn't make sense. Like, I don't want to be afraid of God. And when we think of the fear of the Lord, sometimes we think of the word fear as like this, man, I'm really afraid. But what this word fear means is a respect and an awe and a reverence of who God is. Many of us grew up with fathers who we loved. We knew they loved us. We knew that the safest place in the world for us was with our dad. But we also had a healthy respect reverence and fear of our fathers. And there's no such thing as a perfect father, so you might be like, Jeremy, that was a bad illustration. I'm trying to use that as some helpful way for us to understand that a person can be safe and it can be a person that we love intimately and desperately, but we also have an appropriate reverence, respect for the person. The people of Israel, they've seen the work of God. They, they are watching the dead bodies wash up on shore, and they know the God of Israel, the one true God of the world, is not one to be toyed with or to be taken lightly. I have reverence. I have awe. I have fear of him. But the, and it also says they believed in the Lord. Their faith in God was strengthened in what they had seen here. And so, brothers and sisters, like the people of Israel, you should fear him. You should live in light of the awareness of who God is. And like the people of Israel, your faith and your trust should continue to grow in the God that you watch work powerfully and mightily. In conclusion, God is absolutely sovereign over everything. He says so. He doesn't just leave it for us to debate about. I am God and there is no other. I'm going to get weight. I'm going to set a trap and draw Pharaoh out and destroy and deliver my people through the waters of judgment. I'm absolutely sovereign for my own good, says the God of Israel. This is good news for you. This is good news for you. If you're here this morning 
and you haven't put your faith in Christ as your Savior, you will experience the waters of judgment. The Bible says that God will cast away into, we read it in Revelation chapter 21 this morning, right? The, the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. That, that sounds like waters of judgment to me. I hadn't, hadn't even thought about that in relation to this sermon, but man, waters of judgment, it means being described as a lake that burns with fire and brimstone. If you've never turned from your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, then let me encourage you to do this, to stand back and be silent and receive that deliverance. Just like Israel received their, his, their salvation from Yahweh God, stand back and put your faith in what Christ has accomplished for you. And if so, if, 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 if you do that or if you have done that, you are going to be someone that God is sanctifying for his own glory. All of this is so that you and everyone in the world and all spiritual beings in the entire universe will realize with absolute certainty that God is in absolute, total, complete, free, sovereign control of everything, and that brings him glory. He is sovereign and glorious. If you bow your heads now and close your eyes, and I'll ask the music team to come up. And I'm just going to give you, I'm not going to ask anybody to raise hands or come forward or anything like that. I will say this, if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, don't leave here today risking the waters of judgment. Come to Christ and be delivered through the waters of judgment in Christ. You can talk with me or Pastor Matt or Pastor Will. or I mean, there's just a bunch of people in here who could take a Bible and show you how you could know Christ as your Savior. But for many in here who do know Christ as your Savior, friend, let your heart... I mean, so, sometimes the application of a sermon is just this. Like, worship your awesome, glorious, sovereign God. Live the rest of this week in the good, comforting news that God is in complete control of everything. So let me give you just a moment. I'll ask the piano to play through one verse. You pray, talk to the Lord, share with him whatever you'd like. If you'd like to talk with someone about your own soul, please, um, I'll be standing at the back here. We can go off into a separate room where I can get someone to share the, the gospel of Christ with you. We'll, um, we'll let Paula play through one verse, and then we'll stand and sing, and then I believe Pastor Will will come and close our service in prayer. Let's stand as we sing, O Church Arise. O Church Arise, and put your armor on, for the call of Christ our Captain. For now the weak can say that they are strong, in the strength that God has given, with shield of Reaching out to those in darkness. 
to love the captain so, but to rage against the captain, and with the sword that makes the wounded whole, we will fight with faith and valor, when faced with trials on every side, we know the See the cross where love and mercy meet as the Son of God is stricken. Then see his foes lie crushed beneath his feet, for the conqueror has risen. And as the Spirit, come, put strength in every stride, give grace for every hurdle, that we may run with faith to win the prize of a servant good and faithful. As saints of old still find the way, retelling triumphs of his grace. We calls and hunger for the day when with Christ we stand in glory. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are in control and we are not. We thank you for your good plan that you are carrying out in perfection, Father. I pray that for this we would worship you, that we would honor you, and I pray that we would we would take comfort in a God that that carries out his glory to its fullness, Father. I pray that this would become the source of our joy, the source of our fulfillment. I ask that you would go with us this week. In Christ's name.